We're joined with with uh, with Mark Schultz here, American icon. Um, the accolades go far, far. He's a, uh, a California state champion in gymnastics and in wrestling. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's more to that story, too. Uh, a three-time NCAA Division I champion for the University of Oklahoma. Uh, he is a uh, two-time uh, UWW, but it wasn't UWW, then it was FILA, the world champion, two times Olympic champion, 1984, 1988 Olympic uh, silver. And uh, this man was a winner of the Ultimate Fighter, I'm sorry, the... Uh, the Ultimate Fighting Championships nine. nine yeah. Is that what it was? Yeah, against Goodridge. Yeah, yeah. right. On like yeah. a, a night's notice. Yeah, <laughs> on one night's notice, they they ask you like, "Hey, you want to? What do you think? You want to fight?" And you're like, "Uh, let me think about it." Okay, we'll do it. I guess we'll just win the UFC. You know. And there's a lot more to the story too, Mark. But those are just some of the highlights. <laughs> you know, you and your brother. Uh, uh, Dave, your late brother Dave, uh, are I believe the winning winningest brother duo of all time. Of all time, as far as titles go, uh, and uh, American brothers. American yeah. brothers. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so the Satya and the Belaglazovs are the other two Russian brothers. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, Bavasa Satyev, and yeah, of course. But um, and we're 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 really honored to be joined with you, you know, for you to join us uh, for the show, and uh, we're just really we want to we want to talk talk to you because someone like you, you know, your story needs to be told, needs to be heard by people. You're an American icon. Uh, you've done some amazing things, and I think that it's important for your story to be told to whoever wants to listen. Absolutely. Yeah. So well, I'll tell you the story. Uh, a lot of people, they don't want to listen to me. They can just go watch that that the documentary, or they can they can read my book. There's another documentary called "The Prince of Pennsylvania." That was, but it's not about me. It's about the murder. So right. you're not gonna find out a lot about me from that one. But uh, if you want the real truth, you can get the the documentary that came out or read my book which goes through all my high school years which right. to me i thought was the most miraculous because uh, my high school i'm the only california state champion in history never to win a tournament prior to the state qualifiers <laughs> which is amazing yeah that's absolutely wild. amazing yeah because cal in california is, a, is one of the states where there's one state tournament there's not four or three it's it's one unified tournament so you're a real deal athlete if you win that championship or even medal but go ahead i'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you yes no that's true there's only one division in california and about 900 schools that compete and you know i hadn't even won you know my 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 high school coach ed hart Ooh, I'm going to be in uh, nominated for uh, nominated for the, to be inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. He scheduled three tournaments that year. I think it was the Cabrillo was first, and I broke my toe and couldn't go. And then the Alisal was second, and I lost my first match and was disqualified. And then the Monavista, I took third place, and 
that was my only and i had one four-man tournament in ashland oregon when i started wrestling and i didn't win any of those i didn't i the, and that was my only experience in tournaments and then at the end of the year i won the league which was nine schools the region which was 20 schools the central coast section which was 90 schools and i beat the defending central coast section champion mm-hmm. uh, joe guillory and uh was named the outstanding wrestler and Joe's only loss that year was to my teammate, Jeff Newman, which is weird because Joe's only got two losses that year up to that point. And they're to two Palo Alto guys. Right. And Jeff was undefeated that entire year, except at the end of the year, he lost at CCS and then didn't qualify for state. But right. I won CCS, went to state, and then I had a, Every match I had at state was really close, but I kept winning and I won the state and that had never been done before. And it still hasn't been done since. Right. Well, what I think if we could just backstep a little bit, because it's amazing your story, Dave got involved in wrestling around seventh grade or so. And then you were involved in gymnastics. You were a gymnast first. That's right. I was the Northern California all-around champion for my age group. You said I was state champion. I wasn't. I was Northern California state champion. Sorry about that. Yeah. That's okay. But, yeah, uh, that gave me a lot of athletic ability. You know, gymnasts, they can do anything. You know, they can do parkour. They can do breakdancing. Better than parkour and breakdancers. Right. They can do anything. And so I knew, even though I wasn't, uh, I didn't have much experience in wrestling. I knew that I was a better athlete. I could do things nobody else could do athletically, like most gymnasts, right? So right. I just transferred all that athletic ability into wrestling. But there, there's, there, I mean, gymnastics can prepare you for anything, but it cannot prepare you for the conditioning required in wrestling conditioning is what wins in wrestling and right uh, that's basically you just drive yourself to drop it's it's brutal of course you know well as anybody yeah well you know i mean uh you know my, my accomplishments don't you know pale in comparison to anything that you've ever done uh but i would say that you having that being the physical specimen that you were and you know, learning the te- and having your brother as kind of like, not a leadership role, but kind of like in, a, in an archetype to follow. And Dave was built differently than you. He wasn't as physically gifted as you were, but he made up for it with his strategy and his technique. And even though he was st- strong and deceivingly strong, uh, uh, you made up for it like with just brute force, you know, with just that raw athletic <laughs> power and talent and strength, like a Hulk, right? But the truth is, me and Dave are very similar. Now, I might have been a much better athlete than him, but what does being an athlete mean? You know, when it comes to wrestling, Dave was an incredible athlete. Sure. And he was, I mean, he, every time he threw legs on me, I could have swore it was illegal. That's I mean, <laughs> 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 my back. Like, this got to be illegal, breaking, paralyzing someone for life. It has to be, it has to be a rule somewhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, what about the story? Well, you know, what drove, I, I really, what was, uh, there's a couple things that I wanted to ask you from your, from your book and from what I saw, what drove you to, there was a couple of defining moments. What made you decide to go into, to switch to wrestling, right? Like, um, developing as a man, developing confidence, wanting to be a tough guy, wanting to be, wanting to be a fighter. I shared those sentiments too. And I believe Jordan did as well too. Um, you know, becoming more confident, becoming a man, wanting to beat up everybody, wanting to be able to defend yourself against bullies. You know, you mentioned about, uh, uh, there was a fight that you, you and you and your brother Dave had that was really like a pivotal moment for you as well too. Um, well, yes. yeah, if you could, if you could comment on that, like those, those pivotal moments that drove you into, into going in that direction. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of confidence when I was a kid. I, I was always small and young for my grade. And I, I, uh, you know, my, I, I was constantly trying to kill the fear the I, I couldn't defend myself. I didn't know how to defend myself. I was I could do great athletics uh, tricks in, in gymnastics and stuff. I mean, I was doing two and a half twisting, one and a half backs off a three meter board, hmm. and you know two and a half fronts, and you know just yeah. But I couldn't. I didn't know how to defend myself. And my brother, who was supremely confident. Uh, he he wouldn't back down from anybody and i was i never got bullied really when i was a kid because i had this big brother that was known as the toughest kid in school right. and so if somebody picked on me david would go beat the shit out of him and that would be the end of him and uh so i thought to myself you know one day and then i had this fight with my brother one day he said something really disrespectful to me i I had quit gymnastics to take uh, Tang Sudo, which is a Chuck Norris style karate up in Medford, Oregon. And I had taken about four months of Tang Sudo and, and I, this was after I quit gymnastics and my brother came up from California to Oregon to visit me my junior year when I was 16 for my 16th birthday. And he said something really disrespectful. and. I, I don't even know what it was, but I said, okay, I'm going to teach this guy who the real boss of family is with my four months of Tangsudo training. <laughs> I take him, we go outside and I take a swing at him and he ducks and double legs me, takes me down, gets the mount and just punches my face until I'm just like hamburger, you know? And so <laughs> I slept in the car that night. And I was so embarrassed, I couldn't face my family. And then I thought to myself, you know, yeah. if I could just beat up everybody on earth. I mean, that's what I thought when I went into Tangsudo. If I could just beat up everybody on earth, I could be happy with myself. And that got me into Tangsudo. But that getting fight, getting beat up by Dave, I said, screw Tangsudo. I'm going out for the wrestling team. So that's what I did. The next day, I quit Tangsudo and I went out for the wrestling team and I wasn't history. very. I was my record my junior year was four wins and six losses at 130 pounds, wow. and I, 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 the coach kicked me off the team because I wasn't winning enough in competition. But he created this challenge match system where if you wanted to be on varsity, you had to wrestle off anybody yeah. else at that weight. 
And so every week I had a, a, a challenge match with this guy that was in my weight. And I had 11 challenge matches with him and I won 10 of them. And so I made my, I earned my spot. And then he just one day told me, I'm replacing you with the second string guy, Wade Yates. And I was like, well, that's not really fair. I've been winning the challenge matches. He should be putting me in adversity. It's his system he created. So I complained to the principal and the principal called the coach in with me in there. And he said, coach, you got to, you got to put Mark back on the team. You created this system and you kick him off the team. That's not fair. You got to put him back on. So he did, but he hated me after that for going to the principal and complaining. Yeah. So I could never wrestle for him again. And I had to leave. So I, I went back to Palo Alto, California. And a lot of people think that Dave helped me to become state champion my senior year. The truth was Dave and I never lived together. I didn't work out with Dave one time from the time I started wrestling to the time I won the state. I never worked out with him one time other than that day he beat the crap out of me. Uh, yeah. And so um, that's a misconception a lot of people have. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting dynamic there. But well, you had you had like being from Palo Alto, from what I, you know, from what I saw in the film and from what I read and listened to, um, you had a good support system there. There was the Stanford staff was there. You had uh, you know uh, some college wrestlers that were in town, and you had a couple of good mentors that really helped you along the way. And uh, also too, you know, I, I imagine because you know I believe you know your your parents being. Uh, academics or you know the, the position that they were they put you on to some sort of philosophy that seemed to help you a lot and that that kind of resonated with me when i when i listened to i didn't I, I was a history major in school i didn't discover philosophy until after i was pretty much done but you mentioned uh, a book that was really pivotal for you called uh, by by uh, uh, j krishna mirti i believe is that correct is that that's correct you are the world changed my life Jay okay. Krishnamurti changed my life. This I wouldn't call him a philosopher necessarily. I don't know what I would call him actually. Maybe a teacher. I don't know. But he doesn't want to be. He was. He was. He was. He was a very. He was a, a genius as a kid, and everybody was going thought this guy is going to be the new messiah. We're going to to make him the head of this organ, this new religion, or this right. new organization. And they called it the Order of the Star, uh. and. It happened to Andy. And then the day that they formed this Order of the Star, he takes over as the head of this group. And his very first action he, he, he performs as the leader of this group was to disband the Order. <laughs> what a, what a yes. move. <laughs> yeah. 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 He, didn't want to, uh, he didn't want anybody following him. He wanted to... A, a true teacher does not look for followers. A true teacher shows somebody how to live without them. And that's what he does. He tell, he teaches people how to live without him. And the things that he taught me were so valuable. And it's, I mean, I could, you know, try to encapsulate, you know, his teachings in a short period of time, but it really doesn't, you know, cover what, what, what what I'm trying to say, but basically right. what he taught was like 
to not uh, to observe your mind and observe the world for what is, not what should be, and to have no judgment about what you are observing and to not think about the future or the past, but to just observe the present and live in the present constantly and just observe the world and, and, and your mind in the present without thought, without judgment. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that really, I mean, that doesn't really cover everything, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. Sure. Um, and when I went to the state championships, for example, it really helped me because like when I would look at the state bracket, I would see all the people in that tournament. I mean, there's 32 people in this tournament. And what I did was I would look at the bracket sheet and I would look to see who my next match was. And I'm just using this as one example, but I would look at my next match and then I would walk away immediately. I didn't want to know anything that was going on after that because it didn't exist. It, it was another world. My world is now. And my world now, I'm going to be facing this one particular opponent. Well, if I, because if I would have looked at like the entire tournament bracket with all these guys in there, it could get kind of overwhelming. I sure, absolutely. Yeah. By looking at just my next match, taking things one step at a time, one match at a time, living constantly in the present. And just, you know, reacting to what's going on in the present, whether it's, you know, walking around before the match or wrestling in the match. And so that kind of really helped me keep my head on and not freak out. Uh, and uh, I just kept, uh, I, I just said, you know, when the time comes, to, I'm going to do my best. And then I did. And it I, I beat my first guy seven to six. He was fifth in his section. Well, he wasn't that great, but I and I barely beat him. But the next match I had was the guy that was ranked to win, and um, he was beating me with one point by one point with ten seconds to go. And I I got an escape to go into overtime, and then caught him with a banana split in overtime. Oh and, no way! And then the next in the semifinal, that got me in the semifinals. And in the semifinals, the guy take me down, rode me the whole first period. Second period, I did this side roll that I, this guy named Bob McNeil at Stanford taught me this side roll. This dude was a yeah. rolling, he was like a pill bug or something. He was always just doing rolls, roll, roll, roll. <laughs> and was, okay. But he taught me this and I put uh, this guy, his name was Kerry Hyatt. I put him on his back in the second period with this move and I held him there the whole second period and he was fighting so hard to get off his back second period. He was so exhausted. He couldn't even wrestle third period. So I beat him five to two. I wrote him out. And then in the finals, this guy, Chris Bodine, who I wrestled in college, he went to Arizona state. He take me down. He took me down and I escaped after about a minute. He took, takes me down again right away. And I escaped at the end of the period and he's ahead four to two. And then I caught him with a side roll in the second period to get two points. And in the third period, all he's got to do is escape, and he's the state champion. And he stands up, breaks my lock, and 
he's just about ready to escape and I reach down, I snatch a single leg and I hold on and I don't know what to do. But I know if I let go, he's going to be the state champion. So I just held on for dear life. And then, and I'm thinking to myself, this might be the last match I ever wrestle. Because I didn't have any plans to survive financially after this. So I thought, if I don't win this match, nobody's going to know who I am. I'm not going to get a wrestling scholarship. I'm going to have to join the Marines and then meet new and interesting people and kill them. So <laughs> what I did was I... <laughs> a classic slogan. As soon as I recovered, I did something I'd never done before. I did a backseat play with a single leg and miracle upon miracles, he lands on his back and I slapped in a half Nelson and cradled him for three and won the state. It was what a, a way to go. It made me start believing in God. And then, like an idiot, I joined the Mormon church. But I, I did that to get the job, mainly. Okay. But, okay. Uh, anyway. That's an interesting story to get to. Yeah, well, so you were, well, I, I love how you, like, how of all the titles that you had, like your NCAA titles, Olympic titles, that we're talking about your California state championship, I feel like you hold that very near and dear to your heart. Uh Absolutely. It's the most miraculous thing that's ever, it's the most miraculous year of my life. And I've had a lot of miraculous years. I believe that. I believe, you know, and I, and I, and, uh, and I, you know, we know it as fans and uh, as followers. But I wanted to, um, you mentioned about the Mormon church. Okay, so after, so there's a, I mean, we can go whatever direction you want to go here. But like, so as a, as a, as a when you join the Mormon church, uh, the LDS uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You were the head coach of BYU first, or did you join after? No, I became the assistant coach, and eight months after becoming the assistant, I joined. And then I became the head coach three years later. Okay. I see. Okay. And, but I reached. I joined was because Alan Albright, the head coach, the guy, the guy that I first met when I got there, he said that he was going to leave in like three years, and if he, if I want, if he, if I wanted, I he could set it up to, for me to take over. So, but he said, I can tell you one thing though, Mark, they're not going to hire a non-member because they hired a non-member before, and there's a scandal, and they didn't want to go through that again. So they said. You're going to have to join the church. So I needed to find something to justify my conversion. I need to find some kind of scientific evidence I felt in order to justify it. And I come from a family of scientists and entertainers. And uh, the the uh, first thing, when, so I started looking for all these, like, these truth claims and the thing that that was the strongest evidence to me was this thing they called chiasmus. Chiasmus is well, they they presented it to me as an ancient Hebrew poetic device used in the memorization of long text and significant spiritual events, and so. <clears throat> Chiasmus is a uh, it's kind of like a palindrome, like the name Hannah 
or kayak is right. spelled race car. Yeah. backwards the same. But it's not. But in in palindromes, it's letters that are formed that way. In chiasmus, it's words that are formed. And then as you go down the passage, there's another word that matches another word on the other side of the passage. That and then they meet to like to to like this uh, center point. And at the center is like the thing, the main point of the whole chiasmus, which ties the two sides together. The, yeah. And and so it's almost like a mathematical equation. So I thought, okay, this this is pretty strong evidence, and that's what convinced me to join. But then, like you know, six months ago, when I found out that it was all BS and everything's just a big lie, that uh, that uh, there's chiasmus in the Bible, in the book of the Hebrews, in the first war of Napoleon, the late war, Dr. Seuss books. I mean, it's all over the place. And I think chiasmus actually appears naturally in English speech, the way we tell stories. You know, we I tell. See. Anyway, I, it's a way to expand a story out, like double the size of the story. If you need to, if you need to uh, a longer story. Joseph Smith needed to make his stories longer. He was a, there's a lot of BS in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and all the stuff Joseph wrote. It's all BS. It's all fiction. Right. Anyway, it, and that can be proven so easy now because the Internet's everywhere. I mean, access to – we're in the information age. They can't pull the wool over our eyes like they could in 1991, the year that I joined. Right. But the, right, right. 2020 – in 1991, they had the highest baptism rate ever in the history of the church. In 2022, they had the highest rate of people leaving the church, which is the year I joined and the year I left. <laughs> Interesting. That's fascinating. No, I, I think, you know, I lived in Vegas for a period of time, and we had a, we had a large LDS community out there. And I, I've I, me being a history guy and... I've always been fascinated by religion. I, I read a book by a guy named uh, D. Michael Quinn, who happened to be a guy that was, um, he got excommunicated. He was a professor at BYU, and he's a Yale grad. He was he went to get his uh, PhD at Yale. But then he, he did a big book on exposing, the, not really exposing, but he's talking about like the methods that Joseph Smith probably used, the occult connections and the use of ceremonial magic and all these other things that he kind of put together just you know he still agreed with some things he just disagreed with other things and then they excommunicated him and now he lives i don't know now he's somewhere in la living in a you know single bedroom apartment so it kind of like destroyed him but the book was fascinating to me i don't know if it destroyed him but they they you know that's probably not the right word but they they publicly embarrassed him. They oh, chastised yeah. him. You know what I mean? They they did a lot yeah. of you know, they 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 uh you know he 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 was made an example of or whatever I guess I a, a series of other people. It wasn't just him. It was a few other people that were involved with it too. Um, yeah, I understand that that to me people that get excommunicated are actually heroes because they are the ones that have the guts to stand up and speak the truth. And, you know, the church is crazy. I mean, the Dallin Oaks, the second council, the first counselor of the first presidency, he said something to the effect of 
you are never to question your general authorities, no matter, even if you know they're wrong. Right. Really? Yeah. That's, that makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's not American to me. And that's not, you know, that's not about free thought. That's not about people developing yeah, and, and becoming the best versions of themselves, you know? And they're claiming that, you know, holding up truth is, you know, the highest, best thing you can do. And, and then they want us to just ignore the truth and just exercise what blind faith, like blind faith is the highest form of spirituality. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't think anybody does. Well, actually there are a lot of people that do, especially Mormons. I mean, I saw myself practicing that a little bit because I'm a BYU faculty member. I, I could not turn against the church. So I didn't want to know anything about, all the evidence that proved the Book of Mormon was false. And Joseph Smith was just a liar and a thief and an adulterer and a pedophile. And a, he even killed two people right before he died. And right. I mean, the, yeah, it was self-defense, but he, he has to go to the grave knowing he killed two people. Right. Right. No, it's, well, it's interesting. It's like, you know, uh, Mark, I, I've heard, you know, I like this, uh, this axiom, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right. You know, what starts off as something maybe good and beneficial to people turns out to be this nasty, violent organization, person or whatever. It happened. I, I was raised Catholic. You know, my dad's not, but my mom's Polish Catholic. And uh, I, you and uh, me are both Hungarian. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're black in Hungarian. Your last name. That's right. It means Hungarian. That's right. Or it means black. I, I, I've been learning Hungarian because I'm Hungarian, and I knew that because I I, I learned Hungarian. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's awesome that you know that. Not, not everyone thinks it's Italian or something like that, but it's funny that you know that. You're one of the only people that ever see that and know that. So your grandparents are Hungarian? Is that what it was on your on your dad's side? On my dad's side. They're nice. Hungarian Jews. Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, they, em- they emigrated to it's the States? Just like yours. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Like my dad. Yeah. I well, won the world's in Budapest. How coincidental is that? That's, like that's a right. Miracle. 85 uh, world champion in Budapest. And you, you went full circle. You went back there and right. uh, represented. Did you have any, do you have any, did you have any family there still? Or are they all gone since? Uh, I probably do. But I wouldn't know where. I got gotcha. you. All I know is my grandmother's genealogy and, uh, you know, it goes back. They, I mean, they, they go back in Budapest for generations, you know, before my grandmother left Budapest for America. So, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Really, yeah. Yeah. Did, Man, uh, hard language. You talk about the hardest. It's like the fourth hardest language in the world. I'm saying you're, it's so it's a native language. And man, they, they, they glued words together to make these super long words. Impossible. <laughs> yeah. There's like no articles. The articles are at the end of the word or something like that. Right. Uh, yeah. I've heard the closest related language to Hungarian is like Mon- Mongolian or some sort of step language. That's similar to Mongolian. You would know better a, than me. Maybe. Uric and Finnic. It's like a combination of the Ural area of Russia and the Finnish and Finland area. And they came together in the, the the plains of Hungary, down by the Cas- the Caucasus Mountains, and they settled that area in there. Right. And 
they were badasses, man. They they conquered, and you know they 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 were tough. They, really yeah. tough. The original, the original. Picking the wrong side in world in these world wars. Right. No, yeah, you got uh, shrinking, and so they used to own that entire area all the way from coast to coast. But now they've just got this little landlocked country. Yeah, yeah, and they've you know they've been conquered and kind of had to join forces and hold you know all throughout the ages of uh, of. Uh, of the of, of the wars in Europe, you know, kind of culminating with World War Two, but you know, it's it is an interesting story because they were, you know, with the, with going back to before Attila the Hun or after Attila the Hun, then you had uh, you know the uh, Arpad and the the Magyars, which is what the Hungarians call themselves, right? You know that. Yeah. And did you ever eat any Hungarian food? You ever have? Did your grandmother ever make any stuff for you? Well, like I know uh, crazy about paprika, but other than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. The national spice of Hungary is paprika. Yeah, my dad like wears like a little charm with paprika in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Got paprika. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> they love paprika. Yeah, their food is called paprikash. So anything that has paprika, it's like everything. Does put- he use it? Like people carry hot sauce. Does he put it on stuff? Or yeah, is it more he just like has symbolic? it. He just has it on him at yeah, all times. Just you know in case. I mean? Just in case. <laughs> all right. I like that. I live drinks with it and everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh yeah, you know, and then um so yeah, you won the worlds in eighty five with uh uh in, in Budapest. You won it again in eighty seven, right? Yes. Now, where was that one? France? Yeah, Clermont Ferrand, France. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I try to talk the language of my countrymen when I speak their language. <laughs> That's good, you know. Commendable. <laughs> in, in all your travels, and all you know, like, because I had a little bit of traveling too, and Jordan's done a little bit, you know, in his military days as well too. But what, what, do you have a favorite place, or did you enjoy all of them? I, I mentioned I, in your book, you mentioned about the Koreans. You really got along well with those Korean kids when you first yeah. went there. You Fun. Know? Yeah, I love the Korean people. They're so great, and I mean, that that trip to Mongolia is my first time out of the country and right these 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 uh, for some reason i don't know what it was but i just got along with the the koreans and so i started hanging around with them and they would come up to me and like we'd be going to lunch and stuff and they'd grab my hand and hold my hand while we're going to lunch and i was like <laughs> don't do that in america you know and, like, oh, don't yeah, yeah. and so where we go walking to lunch holding hands I'm sitting down and this 105 pound world champion from South Korea comes over and he's like sits on my lap and the one guy one of the 220 pounder comes and sits next to me and puts his arm around me and then this 80 pounder comes over and sits next to me puts his arm around the other side and I'm like just surrounded by these Koreans but it was it was all good you know (laughs) no funny business (laughs) <laughs> I gave him all my clothes when I left away. I gave him all my jeans and stuff. Jeans are a big deal over there. Right. But right. anyway, uh, yeah, I love the Korean people. I The favorite place I've ever been probably as far as where I went to wrestle was Japan. I mm, think okay. I love the Japanese people and they're great. And yeah. there's countries are so clean and organized. I always did really well in like really like advanced 
cities and countries. But when I went into primitive countries, I didn't do so hot. My yeah, brother the- was the opposite. He, he'd do really good no matter where we went. But Why do you think that is? Like what a... Probably just, just, I don't know, just the fact that, you know, I would grew up in America. And so, you know, going to like a primitive country like Uganda or somewhere is just, you know, I mean, there's no air conditioning. Yeah. You know, it's, it's miserable, you know. Right. Dirty. And your brother was the opposite, you said. Paper, toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, these, some of these places are third world countries where you're going to compete, right? Like I, I imagine, especially back in the eighties and, uh, and 90, you know, early nineties and stuff, uh, you know, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and all these other places were still like, I mean, they're still third world countries now. So can you imagine what they were like back then even? Right. Oh, yeah. When I was in Mongolia, it's at like all the pictures of Lenin and the hammer and sickle and military trucks everywhere. And now it looks more like America, where they're just capitalizing up Kentucky Fried Chicken, McDonald's, right. pizza, you know. Yeah, it's, capitalism rolled into Ulaanbaatar, right? Is that where you did you go to Ulaanbaatar? Is that where it was? Where the in the capital? That yeah, was for the I Junior Worlds, right? You made the Junior Worlds team. For the that Junior one? Worlds, yes. Yeah. And the, the Mongols—they're the only country in the world that has wrestling as their national sport. But, yeah, but they are wrestlers of wrestling. It's a, they had this strange dance they do. They got this totem pole thing that the, a referee yeah. holds. And then the wrestlers like wear this weird outfit. And then they start flapping their arms like birds. And they're walking around this like totem this, right? pole. And then once they get going, <laughs> they, they, they attack each other. And there's no weight classes. And they just go till there's one guy left. And one takedown ends the match. And yeah, or yeah. His hand to the ground or his knee to the ground anything except his foot to the ground he loses so but yeah they used to, that's wrestling archery and horseback riding or the three national sports and they used those from the Genghis Khan eras to yeah. conquer the world right right I actually uh, I've got a relation to that where uh, while I was in Afghanistan there were the Mongolian army was there and there was some national holiday I, I'm not I can't recall what it was, but they came out and I didn't know it was going to be like a wrestling thing. I thought it was like a pride, you know, like a, and they, they put, they had that totem pole you're talking about and they started doing the dance and I'm like, oh, this is, and they just started beating the crap out of each other in front of everybody doing the, the wrestling. And I was just like, what? <laughs> it was really cool. It was actually awesome. It was just. What's the significance of the, fl- I, I've, cause I've seen clips of it. Was that just, what, are they like doing Tai Chi or something or is it just. Oh. Uh, I have no clue. Yeah, I wouldn't sure speak on it. <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty tough. Yeah. yeah, those guys are yeah. tough, huh? Yeah, no, no doubt. No, I mean going back, especially with the you know with the the Genghis Khan stuff. That's that's fascinating. That they're still uh, practicing yeah. that. That's how that's how influential that that phase of history was for for the mongols they i've heard like murals of him like on still the, do. like I've, on the bunkers and stuff i've heard like one out of four people in mongolia and like central asia is related to genghis khan did you hear did anyone else That's hear that yeah. yeah i dated a girl that was related I mean, everybody's related to genghis khan in mongolia because he had this policy where whenever he conquered an area yeah. he told his generals to bring him the most beautiful women and so he yep. said sex with 
thousands and thousands of women and thousands and thousands of kids, he said. So everybody is related to Genghis Khan, even probably we are. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. And hungry, yeah. I don't know. It's possible. I, so I I did my 23andMe uh, or my my uh, my uh ancestry.com and i i do have i'm i'm i have some uh ashkenaz uh hebrew or, or jewish blood in, in, in me too i had no idea my dad was lutheran my mom's roman catholic you know but somewhere along the way it was, it yeah. was in me too so, most people in hungary in that area you know in belarus and ukraine and stuff now were uh were were jews yeah interesting yeah that's, a lot of people don't know about this, but the uh, the pogroms of Eastern Europe that the Nazis used to to, uh, to to wipe out the Jews of Eastern Europe. Nobody knows about that. Everybody talks about Poland and the concentration camps in Germany, but in Ukraine and Belarus, there were all these camps that were set up to to, to eliminate Jews, and nobody talks about them. Nobody knows about them. They're right. like with Stalin. You mean with Stalin? Stalin's pogroms yeah. or with the Nazis? Yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it was, yeah, it went on for, you know, I mean, it was weird, different phases, and there's an, I don't know enough about it, but, yeah, it's really, it was just a, uh, went on for a thousand years, you know, or maybe even longer, right? Yeah, I know. It's, I never understood why Jews are so persecuted. I just don't get it. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I don't either. I, I've I've heard that uh, a few different reasons. Number one, it's uh, the xenophobia thing. Uh, number two, it was the 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 money thing, right? In regards to controlling and handling money, Christians were sort of forbidden to like lend money or to to credit or anything like that. And imagine like banks were basically illegal; only certain people could hold the banks, and so they would put that burden on to the, that community. And then when it was convenient to to punish them for to punish it. them yeah. or to, to to you know they would like not honor their debts or they would murder murder them or wipe them out and they were seen as like lowly uh, citizens because they were the people that who handled the money because money was bad and evil and disgusting right yeah. I but don't what a weird I, well, I was like I don't know enough about it either but I have heard uh like what you were saying a lot of the jobs that people give them hate for they were forced into at different times for whatever reasons like uh that that are commonly associated with that like you know jewelers or bankers and stuff like that for reasons you mentioned i'm sure other ones and then later they'd you know get they'd punish them for it or or give them you know hate or flack right and like oh wow you're all like it, it whatever the reasons are there's no good ones you know what i mean like it, it just doesn't when did your grandmother? Well, I'm sorry to interrupt. When did your When did your grandmother come to the to the states? Was it after the war, or is it before? Uh, or? It was around. Um, uh, let's see, nineteen. Let's see. She, I think it was around nineteen thirty something. Yeah, it was right before the war. They got out of there. They smelled what was going on. They're like. <laughs> I'm getting, getting out of here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They came, she went to Canada first, got married and then went to New York and settled in with all the other Jews. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> New York. Yeah. Um, 
No, yeah, my, my it's it's interesting. A lot of people got out before, but most people obviously didn't. Uh, my dad, my dad was born in Budapest in '45, and then they left after when the Hungarians had their revolution in '56. They, you know, they overthrew the Soviets right. for like a month, and then yes. they got the hell out of there. Yeah, so that's where they declared their independence from the Soviets. Right. Right, and but the, there really wasn't, you know, much of an independence. It was they were yeah. still kind of under the Soviet thing until recently, and then they broke away. And when 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 Gorbachev broke up the Soviet Union, that's when they really became independent. Right, right, right. Yeah. But man, you talk about a beautiful country. I have never been to a country. I love Budapest. I love Hungary. I mean, there's the the, the, the geothermal spring spas are. Oh yeah. Did you get a chance to go there? It's called the the one's called Sage Haney, the the one with all the pool, the hundreds of hot tubs and cold tubs. Did you did you check that one out? Yes. Oh man. And we went there right before the worlds. It was awesome. Yeah. I met yeah. this girl with, uh, well, I'm not going to talk about it, her, but uh, <laughs> man, <she> was, <laughs> hey, it's all right, man. You know, I mean, talk about whatever you want. Go wherever you you want to go, and don't go where you don't want to go. There are some beautiful women in, in Hungary, though. There are. It's a, it's yes. an interesting gene pool. Which is what I like. Right. Okay. <laughs> nice. They have all, all shapes and sizes there, too, you know. But, uh, um, yeah, so, well, let's, let's go, you know, so so Hungary, and then you traveled a lot of world, you know, a lot of places. You really enjoyed uh, Japan. Uh, I enjoyed the Japan too. I went there briefly to help an MMA fighter, a guy named Peter Graham. I, I like Tokyo. It was interesting. It's f like like a it's like a futuristic movie or something. I'm sure you kind of felt the same way, you know. Yeah. Uh, people are real interesting, different. Um, but going, you know, going into um, some other incidents, you know, like we see how how life was framed for you you know and and, uh, and and it's really highlighted in your book too about kind of the hardships that you had uh you know living in Oregon when your parents split up and living in Oregon and living in you know back to California and that that big victories those big victories that you've had uh your your state championship being the one that kind of stands out really far to you what is it that like you know and, and we'll, we'll get to it too, but like, you know, when, when everything happened with the DuPont incident, right, you have this guy that's sponsoring USA Wrestling and he's kind of this demigod sort of character uh, and, and, you know, because he's giving everybody money and it's, it's a really, it was just like, you know, because I remember as a kid when it all happened and I was, I was 16 when it happened and I, I grew up in New Jersey and that wasn't far from Fox oh, Country wow. so. So yeah. I had some kids that I grew up with that could afford to go to that fox catcher camp, and they had met uh, Dave and 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 I believe you as well too, because Dave was there afterwards as well. Well, I, Dave and I were never there at the same time. Right. Dave came two years after I left. So and okay. When I was there, there was no facilities to train it. It was just nothing. It was worth. It. That's why I left. I see. I see. I gotcha. But I, I would never have come back, even after they built the facility, because DuPont was such a loser. I just hated that guy. I mean, yeah. really, really. Of all the people in my life, and there's very few that I hate, but I hate him. 
that guy. I mean, and I'm not, I don't, it doesn't consume me or anything. Matter of fact, you know, forgiveness is like a martial art technique. Of course. You yeah. People so that you remove the, uh, you're not, you're not, you're no longer encumbered by negativity. So you can be happy and peaceful and focus and on, on things you need to, you want to learn and, and, and really improve fast. You know, it's, it's kind of like a, 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 a martial technique you know, to forgive others. And so you're, you, you, you have the energy to, to improve fast, whatever you want to focus on. You know? Right. You're not, you're not distracted. But you're not carrying around that burden once right. you forgive. Exactly. But, but I've heard this one too. Forgiveness is not amnesty, right? You know, right. so like you can forgive, but you still understand that, okay, we're not together. We're done. Whatever it is, you did this. You're still bad, but I'm forgiven. So I've washed my hands. Yeah. Forgiveness is not to, it doesn't help the, the forgiven. It helps the forgiver. Right. doesn't absolve it anything. Might, but it helps the forgiver more. So, so because people that are real assholes know that about like world champion wrestlers and stuff. And so they think they can just screw them over and they'll just be forgiven and it won't matter. That's a very common uh, thing I've, I've experienced in my life. Yeah. Getting, yeah, just getting taken advantage of and... Yeah. And, uh, they, yeah. And they that, know they're going to be forgiven. So they do whatever, say whatever. Well, um, I don't know. I feel like there's always a price to be paid, right? One way or another. I don't know if it's going to be in this world or if it's in the next one or if it's whatever continues on afterwards. I feel like nothing, I've heard this before, that nothing is ever done for free. No sin is ever yeah. left, you know. I mean, you're always there's going to be something that you have to pay for, unless you truly are apologetic for it and you look to atone for it. These are my personal beliefs, you know. But, yeah, but, it's like but, karma. What comes around goes around. Yeah, it's true. I, I believe in karma as much. I think probably more than I believe in any. Well, I don't believe in any structural religion. I mean, Christ never formed a church. He, he right. you know, all these churches that are forming. It's all for tithing money. And the Christ, he didn't even ask you to believe in him. As long as you don't reject him, the sacrifice he made for us is paid for our sins. We're all saved if we just don't reject him. We don't even have to believe in him. Right. You don't have to go to any church. There's no right. tithing requirement. Well, you talk about a, a church that's big on tithing. The Mormon church says that you can't get to heaven they have three levels of heaven, the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the telestial kingdom. It's all BS. But in order to get to the celestial kingdom, you have to be sealed in an LDS temple. Sealed means you got to get married in an LDS temple. Well, in order to go, even go to an LDS temple, you have to pay a full 10% of your gross income in tithing. Plus, you have to serve your calling and do uh, like a bunch, like 140 other things. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but it's ridiculous. Right. No, I get it. I get it. It's a very high demand religion. Christ never demanded anything from us. I, I believe it. You know, um, I, I think it's pretty fascinating because I've never really had this conversation with anyone, but it's, you know, with, with uh, whether it was 
identified by Jesus himself or if it was by uh, St. Paul afterwards or, or Saul of Tarsus. The idea of, of, of sacrifice, right? Like you, they had the scapegoat, right? The, the Hebrews would have the scapegoat. They would put their sins on it, right? And they would send it off into the desert. And, like, and that's kind of what Jesus sort of took the place of. Am I right in saying that? Is that kind of where it went? I, I've never heard that story. I don't know. It, it's reflected. I mean, it's reflected the, 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 in the, in the Muslim culture, they have Eid as well too, where they sacrifice a goat every year or a, a, a lamb or a sheep, whatever it is. I'm sorry uh, if I said that wrong, but it's the same sort of concept. It goes back to possibly even like in other cultures, like in ancient India or even as recent as the Mayans and the Aztecs and human sacrifice too. You know, they actually literally, sacrifice to to accomplish some sort of goal in this world and uh and these are my theories by the way this is but no one else is this is just some observations that i've made and i think it's kind of interesting that it's reflected in christianity too we no longer have to like sacrifice a human being or sacrifice an animal that the sacrifice has already been done right and right. so yeah so I believe in God still. And that's another thing. People a lot of times join the Mormon, they leave the Mormon church. They have no belief in anything. They become like atheists. And I still believe in God. I have very, matter of fact, I believe in God more now than I did when I was a member of the LDS church. That's interesting. That's very cool. That's fascinating. Yeah, that, that it's that strengthened your yeah, well, I've always said from the very beginning, before I joined the church, while I was in the church, after I left the church, I've always said the same thing. I, uh, My religion is truth. I've always followed truth. Whatever I think is true, that's my religion. Well, for a while, I thought the LDS church was true. Now I know it's not. And so I'm, uh, I'm still, I still haven't changed. Personally. I gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, you, you, uh, I, I like that. I like that. You, uh, you serve the truth. It's almost like, um, like a Greek philosopher, like Socrates or Plato, you know, it makes sense to me. Well, what, you know, now, you know, with, with the incident with, um, the, you know, when everything happened with, with, uh, DuPont and, you know, the murder of your brother and the subsequent, time period afterwards do you believe that that kind of helped not helped but springboarded you into moving into the church though like after it happened with Dave? no i joined the church in 1991 91 okay okay i'm sorry i apologize i was wrong on that and you then, don't have to apologize it's just the way it is but you know it's funny because i tried to convert dave to the church. <laughs> god i didn't do it yeah that's why I believe in God because He's protecting me from doing dumb shit like converting my brother. <laughs> how did how did that go down when you when you tried to convert him? How, how, what was his? Right before he died, he came to Utah to hang out with me, and we went skiing. And I brought him and his wife up to Temple Square where they had this tour that like tries to convince people that the church is true, and they've got all these little uh, you know exhibits and stuff, and. After it was over, I said, you know, what do you think about all that stuff? And 
Nancy, who she just goes, well, what if you don't believe in God? And I'm like, I just spent three hours giving him all this evidence. And then she just, says, <laughs> just throws it all in the trash, you know, and I was like, well, I guess that's the end of that. So I never converted him and thank God I didn't. And I mean, literally thank God. And, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, that was interesting. I've had a lot of miracles in my life, and that's the reason I believe in God. And, and you know, people uh, that a lot of people that leave the church, they they stop believing in God. But I, I'm not going to tell anybody what to believe. I don't care what anybody else believes. To tell you the truth, I think that's the way it should be. Nobody absolutely, should care. yeah, yeah. Teach their own. If you're not hurting anybody, why does it matter? Right. No, I um I think uh well I mean I think you're a guy uh a person who's kind of been there and done that and people should hear what you have to say. You give your input and, and Oh, by the way, know. that documentary uh Wrestling Demons has yeah. been nominated for an Emmy and that's going to be coming up May 22nd. Okay. And, okay. On and what platform? Uh, Chael Sonnen, he's one of the main narrators of that documentary. Yeah. And this shirt that I'm wearing right now, this is one of Chael's shirts. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mean Street, yeah, because that's his brand, right? Mean Street Pizza, yeah. Mean Street Coffee, yeah. that's Mean Street yeah. Fight Club. <laughs> and then uh, and it's Dave Benito, Pedro Sauer, and Gary Big Daddy Goodrich. Okay, nice, nice. Yeah. Where's that's it awesome. uh, coming out on? Do, what do you know? Is it like? Uh, well, it was already. That's the one that we watched. It's the UFC oh, fight pass. The fight lore. It was, it was I, fight, I thought. Yeah. Okay. My that's, mistake. Yeah, that's the one, right? Yeah. Now, who who uh, who votes for the Emmys? Is it the population, or is there a is there a? It's some some organization, the National Television something or other. I don't know. Okay. Well, it's not so, me that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause, <laughs> well, so what's so what, what's um what's what's next for you right now? Like, what are you what, what are what are we what are you up to like these days? Like, what keeps what's Mark a daily Schultz, routine? Yeah, in what Mark keeps Schultz's Mark, life? Yeah, what's what keeps Mark Schultz busy? What's his daily routine exactly? Well, I have a I have a a business. I I do these keynote speeches. I go around the country, around the world, and do these keynote speeches. And I also do self-defense seminars, Brazilian jiu-jitsu seminars, wrestling clinics, wrestling camps. Yeah. Um, just that kind of stuff. Gotcha. And it's keeping you busy, right? And it's, and, yeah. and then of course, absolutely. Um, and where, uh, where can people like, where can we book you? Where can we find you all on uh, well, Instagram, uh, on you Facebook? Can or? Online. Uh, you can get me on Twitter at Mark Schultz. That's my name with a Y. You can get me on Facebook at MS Grappling. You can get me on Instagram at Mark P. Schultz. Uh, my website, markschultz.com, should be up and running by now. I just paid somebody to get it up and running. And okay. so all my contact information should be at markschultz.com now. Got it. And I, I believe you have multiple books, but you, you mentioned... Uh, People could read your book at the beginning. Which book would you uh, were you recommending just for the people out there that you want to reach out? I don't have multiple books. What do you mean? <laughs> it's just the, it's just the well. It's, well, it's the Foxcatcher book, the one that you have. Uh, yes, yeah. it's a New York Times bestseller, and it's an Amazon editor's pick. 
And I like the fact that it's an Amazon editor's pick better than the fact that it's a New York Times bestseller because that means the people at Amazon, the editors have read it and they like it and they're recommending it to other people. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. And, uh, um, well, is there anything else that you want to mention that you want to talk about right now? Anything that we can ask you, you know, I mean, we, we, there's, there's so much more that we can, we didn't even get into the UFC fight, you know, with the Gary Goodridge. I know we can see all this on, uh, it's on the, it's on the, uh, uh, it's in the book and it's, it's on the, uh, uh, the documentary. Um, but uh, can you talk about your experience though? Like that, that fight, like the night. So Dave died a couple months previous, right? And, and your training was, it was a Dave Benito. Is that who it was? Yes. Dave Benito. You're already, well, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, I'll let you lead into it. Heavyweight champ of Canada and in wrestling. And he called up Pedro, my instructor, who was friends with Lonnie Foster, that was Dave Benito's trainer, and they knew each other. And so Dave wanted to fight. He was offered a fight in UFC 9 to go fight Gary Goodrich. And he wanted to prepare for it by training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with Pedro's club. So he called up Pedro, and he called up Lonnie, and he said, uh, you know, I want to get some training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and and wrestling. Well, he couldn't train wrestling with anybody at the jiu-jitsu club, so Lonnie called me and asked me if I would train Dave in wrestling. And so I said, yeah. So he comes down. We train for two weeks, and the last day of training, I slam him, and his hand uh, he, he rolled on one of his metacarpals, and it broke. Mm -hmm. And he... I took him to the doctor, and the doctor said, if we put a cast on, you can't fight, obviously, but if we open your your hand up and join those two bones together with a plate and cover it back up, you might still be able to fight. And so he said, put a plate in. So they put the plate in, and then me and Pedro and Dave, we all met in Detroit for UFC 9. And during the press conference, somebody ratted Dave out and said his hand was broke. So the doctor came over to see Dave's hand and he showed him, and it was pretty bad. It was a big purple bump. And the doctor said, there's no way I'm gonna let you fight. Or maybe it was uh, the, the promoter, Myrowitz, told him he couldn't fight. But either way, he was out and uh, Pedro was sitting right next to me, my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu instructor. And he said, Mark, I know the guy that Dave is going to fight because I can beat him. I think you can too. Uh, so I went over to Bob Myrowitz and I said, what do you think about me taking Dave's place? And Bob said, and I quote, oh, that's a great idea. You're Olympic champ. When you lose, it'll be even better. Anyway, he's trying to poke at you or is he poking you there or is he just was he like speaking out loud well what the hell was that you know he's just trying to stir the pot i have no clue i mean it just it was one of those things just came out of nowhere and i was like what where did that come from you know but that's okay i don't care i mean the guy's gonna pay me i'm not gonna argue with him yeah. so i was like can you give me the night to think about it and he goes, yeah, so like I'm, you know, trying to sleep and they're calling me at all hours of the night asking me for a decision. And I had to tell him, you guys 
keep waking me up. I'm not going to be able to fight. I got to have some sleep. And so they, at 10 in the morning, they call me again. And they said, we got to have a decision right now or we're getting someone else. So I, I went and got Pedro and we went down to the lobby and where uh, Art Davies and Bob Meyerowitz were sitting and they had the contract out there on the table for me to sign. And I said, give me just one more minute. And I went over to this corner and I started, got down on my knees and I started to pray. And I had this very strong feeling that my brother was somehow there with me. And he wanted, he, he was telling me, I have to do this. And I just had this very strong feeling that I had to do it. So I went back and I signed the contract and then me and Pedro went out back and I did some wind sprints to warm up. And we, Dave Benito gave me his cup and his mouth guard. And <laughs> Pedro had a student there that was had wrestling shoes and the rest, it was a size 10, which is the same exact size as me. And he asked me if I wanted those shoes. And I was like, yeah, I'll take them. So I took his shoes. <laughs> and then a lot of people don't know this, but in that UFC, there were only two rules, no eye gouging and no biting. But they created a third rule. And they said that anybody that chose to wear shoes could not kick. Well, I decided to wear shoes because wrestlers, the style is like a driving style. They need yeah. traction. And so I, practice, so I decided to wear the shoes and not kick. And then eight hours later, I'm in there, uh, you know, fighting Gary Goodrich and I won. And now Gary and I are actually great friends. We, it, it, you know, he's in that fight lore episode and he's great in that. He, the guy is a great, great man. And so is Chael and Dave and Pedro. Those, they're all starring in that documentary. And I'm trying to get the the producers, and I don't know what their plan is. I don't even know how this works, but the Emmys are coming up and I'm, and I'm trying to figure out if there's a, are they gonna bring anybody out to the Emmys that was in the show or not? I, I'm just trying to get an answer for that. But, oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, it'd be awesome. You know, you, you go and represent the show. Absolutely. That'd be fantastic. You know, and I think uh, it'd be well-deserved. There's another documentary called Bloodsport, and it's about a good friend of mine named Carlton Hasselrig who got CTE really bad, and he he died at the young age. He was only like 54. And his career is so coincidental because his career kind of mimics my career. I had a very... Uh, miraculous senior year where I had, you know, this, I had hardly any matches. Well, I had, uh, you know, th I was 30 and two my senior year, but I was born six my junior year. Well, Carlton Hasselrig had never wrestled a high school match in his life because he was, his school didn't have wrestling teams, but he was really good in freestyle. So he petitioned his uh, state to let him wrestle in state. And so he did. He wrestled in the Pennsylvania states, which is one of the toughest states besides California. Right. And he wins that. He goes 10-0 through the qualifiers and through states and gets a scholarship to UP Johnstown. And I had a wrestling camp at University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown. And I trained with Carlton for the entire time we had the camp. And 
then he went into the NFL when I went into the Olympics and the world championships. And then after I got done with that, I went into MMA. And when he got done with the NFL, he went into MMA. And so we're, his career like mimics my career. Almost, and he's won three NCAA titles just like me. So right. we're like mimicking each other. It's strange that his documentary and my documentary are chosen for the best short documentaries, the same category <laughs> in the same year. Yeah. Your souls uh, are like intertwined in a, in a way. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. So if I don't yeah. win, I hope Carlton wins. <laughs> I hope both of you guys win. Honestly, yeah. Both amazing stories in their own right. And, uh, you know, and, and, uh, uh, if I might say, on behalf of of, uh, of both of us, we're both like very honored to have you on the show. Uh, we're oh, both big fans. Uh, I've, not, you know, I've watched you since I was a kid. Uh, you know, and I started when I was ten years old, and just this, your story is is amazing. People should know it. People should know you. I think you're a great influence for people in in America and in the world. And I think we should. I'd love to get you down to Tampa at some point. What would it take to bring you down here? Take you out to the well, beach, go fishing, do a little seminar. Yeah, I yeah, I'd like to do that. I uh, Tampa's uh, about forty five minutes from Miami, and so I well, go to like, Miami. It's about four hours from Miami. A little bit further. A little further. Tampa's on oh. the on the Gulf side. Uh, Miami's. I? A, I don't know. I don't know what you're thinking. Are you thinking of uh, okay. uh, Boca I'm, Raton, I'm maybe? Tampa's Tampa's yeah Tampa's on the central coast on the on the Gulf side, but it's all good. We're our own little thing here. We're our own little, <laughs> little city. Uh, but I'd love to get you down here at some point. Are you in Miami? Sometimes you said. Yes, I go to Miami. I've been I've been getting surgeries there. Uh, I've oh, okay. got a problem. I've been getting surgeries there for the past couple of years now, and they're still not done. But oh, uh, I'm sorry. I'll to be hear coming that. back to Miami pretty soon again for another procedure so uh um yeah i'd like to do that let's do that okay yeah yeah we'll set it up man well thank um, you again it, it truly has been an honor it's been so, yeah it's a little you know leaves you a I little starstruck yeah yeah absolutely. You guys successful this is i'm gonna start a podcast myself pretty soon i don't know there you go Let's That's do it. Schultz, <laughs> Schultz, <laughs> Schultz. <laughs> yeah, man who could beat everybody up. Yeah. Huh? Anyway, um, I hope you guys are successful. It sounds like you guys. It looks like you guys are get, doing it the right way, and everything looks like you're gonna be. Thank you, thank you. We we appreciate you. We appreciate you having on, and we'll be in touch. All right, Mark. Okay, great. Thanks, right. man. Thank you again, Take sir. Care. Take God care. bless. All right. <laughs>